0: Imagine a world where you willfully choose to explore textiles, quilting, and mending to celebrate the hand and create works that tug at memories and shared experiences. This is the world of Heidi Parks. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, where I explore the stories, the connections, and the joy of guests in the quilting world. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, the Quilter on Fire, and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you. My guest today is Heidi Parks. She is a quilter, textile artist, and yoga therapist. She is a sought-after teacher and speaker on the quilting scene and has exhibited her work in art and textile museums across the U.S. I could hardly even write this little intro myself because I loved every word in her bio on her website, so here's an excerpt from that. Often using specific textiles, like an heirloom tablecloth, Bedsheet or cloth tea bag, Heidi adds subtle meaning and material memory from the start. Engaging in the worlds of art, quilts, mending, and social media, Heidi is an advocate for the domestic realms, slow stitching, and mindfulness. That was so well written. I just had to use that in the intro. I am going to love this episode, and so will you. So let's explore the story of Heidi Parks. Heidi, welcome to the show.
1: Hi Brandy, thank you for having me.
0: Oh my goodness, this is the kind of quilting that I just love to pour over on Instagram and in the galleries. It's so much fun to look at because you can see the hand of the maker. So I want to start off by talking about something, a little tidbit I found on your website. You came into this world with your grandmother doing something commemorative to celebrate your birth. So so let's start off with that story.
1: I love that story. It's usually the beginning of all of my artist statements and bios. My grandmother organized a collaborative quilt for me before my birth, and she invited my aunts and also my mother's friends and some of her friends to each make a block in a 16 block quilt and there's a lot of applique and trapunto and embroidery and a white background, and it's like an echo forward into what a lot of my quilts look like today.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like you, were, you came into this world wrapped in a bundle of joy, right?
1: Absolutely. And with that reminder of my extended family and that they were there to support me and think about me and not just that family of four that I was growing up with under one roof.
0: Yeah, creative beginning. So let's take a little look back at when you first remember putting stitch to fabric yourself.
1: I have a beautiful little embroidery of a bunny that I began around kindergarten and then I finished in my 20s when I stumbled upon it again and doing the running stitch through that webbed gridded stuff. So I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know I was supposed to do an X, but just putting my needle through those holes was so satisfying. And I remember being in my mother's bedroom, working on that. And of course, making a bunny because I loved all things bunnies at that time and now as well. And that's my first memory of me sewing. Oh, and speaking of mom, how did the people in your life have a creative
0: impact early on in your childhood?
1: Well, my mother is just incredibly skilled at all kinds of handmade things. She made a lot of clothes for me, especially very exciting Halloween costumes, but also she would take the same dress pattern and size it up every time I grew. And that created some of my most comfortable, favorite clothing that I wore in childhood. And my mother loves to bake and is excellent, especially at pie. And my great-grandmother, Nichols, my grandma Nichols, made her way through the depression by selling Mrs. Nichols pies. So we have a lot of metal pie pans from her. And that is a very important tradition to my mother. It's something that she always shared with me growing up. She was doing handmade things.
0: Oh, sounds like you had a really creative upbringing. Okay. So can you tell us more of the story of your stitching that ended up leading to your very first quilt?
1: Yes. I, as a kid got really into hearth song and it was a a brand that I would always ask for for my birthday and Christmas. And they had kits on making your own soap and making a basket and all kinds of handmade things. And eventually I got the hand and heart quilt top. And I started making that and then kind of lost steam. But that technically is the first time I attempted to make a quilt. And I think perhaps something about following the pattern threw me off track. And then in college, I was starting out studying ceramics and art education. I was at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago And eventually I wanted to branch out into more departments. That's a real strength of that school is that they're always encouraging you to try new things. And I had been pressing lace and fabric into clay to get textures. And then eventually they said, you know, why not take an actual fiber art class? And I said, no, I'll take metalworking instead because I wanted to use the blowtorches. And in that class, the assignment was to make a make an object that was as important on the inside as it was on the outside. And the only thing I could think to make for that assignment was a quilt. So I used thin copper sheeting, and I pressed fabric and lace into that copper sheeting. And I used a little hole punch for cold connections and some wire to sew those bits of copper with photographs and textiles and book pages. And that technically is my first quilt that I completed in metalworking my sophomore year of college. And then I went on in my junior year to study with Deanna Guerrero Messia in a class called Sampling. And that class was about quilts and comparing the sampler and the way that fiber artists and quilters would take fabric from other places and make it their own, contrasted with a DJ and the way that they might sample music and then reassemble it to make something that's their own. And in that class, I made several paper quilts. I made a quilt about the Uh, divorces in my family using tracing paper and fairy tales. And then I used the book Heidi and divided all the chapters up and made a quilt about that. Uh, I crocheted it together and used a lot of crochet cotton to, to complete that quilt. And then a lot of time went by. I was a high school art teacher for nine years. And at one point I was doing stage set design for the theater And we wanted a backdrop for the play to be inspired by the Quilts of G's Bend because we were reading some monologues from one of those books as part of this uh, performance. And so we made a 50 foot wide by 25 foot tall inspired quilt top. and, And so that was some important machine piecing that I did with my students And then a few years later, during my last year teaching in September, my grandmother, again, and my mom were important influences. I had just moved out of my mom's home and into my own apartment, and I was doing a lot of nesting. And my mom was also cleaning out my grandma's things because she was starting to downsize. And she discovered a hand-pieced log cabin quilt top that had a lot of 1920s fabric in it that my grandma had purchased at a garage sale or an estate sale for $37.50. And my mom thought, rather than just sitting in a Rubbermaid Tupperware, let's give this to Heidi and have her do something with it. And I didn't have a big piece of fabric to use as the back for that quilt. So I just pieced another quilt top and sandwiched that with some batting and the existing log cabin quilt top. And I hand quilted it in one month while watching the TV show Fringe And by the end of September, I was 100% in love with making quilts. And about eight months later, I quit my job as a high school art teacher to become a quilter because I was that much um, both in love with how it felt to hand quilt and also dissatisfied with my job because that year I had been traveling between two different high schools and it had sucked a lot of the joy out of that profession for me to be stretched thin that way. Well, and the tidbit I love
0: about this path that you were on is that, you know, in your schooling early on and in some of the incredible courses you've taken along the way, they weren't saying to you, like, here's something you need to make, make a quilt, make this on this theme or whatever. They were saying, here's an idea. Let's see what you come up with. Like it was such a yeah. cool, you know, it was an an invitation to do your own thing. And I've heard stories over the years interviewing incredible artists who've gone to art education and find institutions where they've been, you know, not interested in viewing their textile art as part of the learning process. And it's, it's so nice to hear that you had that even though you were doing metal work and different things like that, it was really (laughs) nice to hear that
1: they're saying, yes, try something new, try anything you want. That's, that's really great. It was, I graduated in 2005 and especially at that time, the art Institute was truly blazing a trail for fiber arts in ways that other schools I think weren't yet. And I also took a class from Ann Wilson And that class was art and the everyday and textiles and thinking about everyday materials that you might be able to crochet with or sew with. And those two professors have pushed fiber arts. It's so important and found truly engaging ways of talking about them and of reminding people about their importance and their place in the art world. Yeah. Okay, so you've made this transition.
0: This is a huge Mm -hmm. deal. You've made this transition from teaching to becoming a quilter full time. So on your website in your gallery at the very, very bottom, if you scroll down, there's this at what looks like a tiny little quilt to me, but it says my first quilt. So how did you transition into, you know, from making all the metal work and the different quilts with the school and the different things like that into your actual very first quilt?
1: So that first quilt is the metal quilt. It is? It doesn't yeah. even look like metal. That is really cool. Well, it looks like fabric. It, and it partly is, but if you zoom in, you can see the the shiny copper part that's intermixed. Oh, yeah. And then also book pages and there's a pink terry cloth towel in there and there's some pages of the book Matilda and some photographs of my friends at the time. <laughs> and there's even there's even a little bit of green fabric that is from my baby quilt that my grandmother
0: made for me Oh, that is so great. I still have and cherish my baby quilt. Well, it's my brothers that I stole, but it Mm -hmm. ended up being my baby quilt today. But this is so great. So if you're listening right now, I really encourage you to go to HeidiParks.com. So Parks is P-A-R-K-E-S. And go to the gallery and scroll down to the very bottom because this is kind of priceless. Copper wire photographs, book pages, mixed media, It really does, from like at first glance, look like a scrappy, beautiful baby quilt. Okay, so let's go into how did your quilting blossom from there? So you've made this transition before you even had your mark on how am I going to make income and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you boldly made a transition from working as a teacher to professional quilter.
1: One of the important quilts, if you're, you know, now I'm looking at the bottom of my gallery page yeah. on my website. Yeah. Yeah. I made a quilt for my dad as a Christmas birthday present because both of my parents and I were all born within the same week in December. So we yeah. do a lot of combo presents. And uh, while my mom was hand sewing and cooking for us, my dad always loved woodworking and making things. So traditionally when it came time for my birthday or Christmas, I would think of something that could be made out of wood, and that would be my big birthday request. And so when it came time for birthdays that year, my dad and I made a bench for me out of wood, and I was turning the legs for it on the lathe. And then as a gift to him, I made a quilt. And I pieced different pieces of a fabric that I dyed with coffee and tea together to look a little bit like wood panels. And then I did some concentric circles that I am quilted in place to look like the rings of the tree of a tree. And they change colors from blue to tan once you get to the edge of the quilt. And during winter break, the, the week that was free where we weren't busy celebrating Christmas... I woke up every day for five days in a row and I just worked on that quilt. And I was so curious to feel, what would it feel like physically in my body and in my mind to quilt every day? And it's funny that I thought that's what my life would be like as a professional quilter. And it's not. It's very rare that I get to work on a quilt five days in a row nonstop because I'm updating the website or taking photographs or working on social media or writing things. But in that moment, it felt so satisfying to work on that quilt every day and to have a purpose and to be preparing that as a gift for him. So that was a big part of what got me fired up and thinking that I could do it.
0: So you kind of got hooked early on right from the beginning. You had some close personal family quilts. You had your first fabric quilt. How did it blossom from there?
1: I would say that the next big leap that I took as a quilter was making a quilt called Places Unfold. And that's the quilt that I was making at the end of my job as a teacher. So it was a block-based quilt so that I could work on parts of it in the evening and prepare them and pin them. And then I could put them in a little bag and have them with me at school because I had a practice of modeling, making, and being an artist with the students. So if they were having class time to work on making something, I would try to be making something alongside them so that then we could talk and maybe I could bounce from table to table with the thing I was working on. And then also, of course, there's all the final exams at the end of the year that one has to sit quietly while students are taking tests. And I wanted the portability of a block-based quilt. And I also wanted to use my existing fiber art skills, which especially were embroidery. That was my main Thing in the textile world at that time that I felt great at. So there's a lot of embroidery, there's a lot of hand applique, and then they're machine pieced together. And I think that that was the first quilt that I made as a work of art that was telling a story that was somewhat autobiographical about this feeling of I'm about to move from the suburbs of Naperville to Chicago. I'm about to change my job. I'm really trying to reimagine what life could look like. And in many of those blocks, I try to shift my perspective. So I'm either looking up at the sky or I'm looking down at a Google map page of the neighborhood that i used to live or that i lived at the time and by doing those activities of reimagining and looking at how things could be different i think i was echoing what i was doing in my own life and trying to think about a quilt from a different angle and as a storyteller something that i might be able to sink my teeth in for a longer amount of time
0: Yeah. It really does tell a story. So when you go to the gallery, this one we're talking about is called Places Unfold. Okay. Where are you living right now? And who are your loved ones that you share your world with every day?
1: I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I moved here in 2015. I was the last holdout of my family in Illinois. And when I moved, my mother was living in Florida. My dad was living in Madison, Wisconsin. My brother was either living in Boston or Houston, Texas. And my aunt and my grandmother were living here in Milwaukee. So it's a very special opportunity to get to live closer to family and a very, very special time to get to spend a little bit more time and energy with my grandmother. She's since moved down to Florida so that my mom can take care of her more And my aunt is also my landlord, so it made it very easy to figure out where to live here in Milwaukee. My dad has since passed away in 2018, so I was especially glad that I lived here, and I was able to soak up some extra time with him and do do a lot of special things together. We did woodworking and made a quilt rack that I live with, and we made our own couch with wood, and I upholstered it. And since then, my brother has moved to Madison, Wisconsin, so I get to see him and my sister-in-law and my nephews and their dog quite frequently. And one very important addition to that sphere since I moved is my sweetheart Beau. We live about five minutes away from each other, and we're coming up on our four-year anniversary together, and he is a very important part of my quilting practice and someone who I talk to about my quilts real frequently. And I still get to see my aunt a lot as well. We have a Wednesday night pizza night tradition where I bring a little bit of sewing over to her house and we watch movies and eat pizza together. And and it's a great thing to get to do on the regular.
0: Yeah. And this one little tidbit I want to pull out of there that I saw, I think, in one of the videos on your website, maybe. Um, there's a little studio tour video on your website somewhere. And uh, that rack in the background, is that what you're talking about that you yes. made with your dad?
1: Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it is about six and a half feet tall and five and a half feet wide with five bars that go across so that the quilts that I make are normally five feet square. They can fold across and not get any creases in them. And I would say right now that rack probably has 25 to 30 quilts on it. It's a workhorse. Uh, It is just a, a really beautiful thing to get to work with. It comes apart somewhat easily. So if I need to move, I can take it apart and we made it out of Elm and designed it, figured out the angle and all of those details. And the wood is sealed with a clear sealant. My friend, Laura Hopper, Sonic Stitches on Instagram would be, uh, proud of me for mentioning that it is not raw wood that's touching my quilts because the acid in that could affect the color of them or deteriorate the cotton over time. But it's sealed with a clear sealant. And so the quilts are nice and safe and protected on there. And it's very strategically not in direct sunlight. Ah, good point. And
0: you know, that's such a great idea. A great way to store mm-hmm. your quilts because I mean, I store my quilts on my spare bed and I have dozens of quilts on the spare bed at any given time, but every time we have company, what do I do with them? Right? I have to find a new location for them. Mm-hmm. So, having that beautiful rack on your wall, it's a feature for sure in the mm-hmm. living room or whichever room you're in, and it's gorgeous. And I was guessing there might have been about 6 or 8 quilts on there, but dozens. You you're fitting them all on top of each other. What a great idea.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And you know, it, it has another job as well. Maybe two or three years ago, I got rid of my design wall because I found I wasn't using it. It didn't feel helpful to have to pin and carefully place things to get them to attach vertically. So when I make a quilt, I'm usually on the floor and I can lay things and move them around so quickly. When I show people this, when I'm teaching on zoom, they're sort of in awe at how 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 ready I am to move things and adjust them and try a new location and then once I have things pinned or just to check how my progress is going I will either stand on the couch and hold my cell phone up and take a picture of it on the floor or especially in between spurts of working I'll lay my quilt in progress across the quilt rack so that I can see the whole quilt laying down Maybe it's missing the top four inches, but it's a very helpful opportunity for me to see my quilts vertically without having to commit wall space to having a design wall anymore.
0: Yeah, such a great idea. Okay. I want to talk about a phrase that you wrote on your website. Mm -hmm. You add subtle meaning and material memory from the start. So what does that mean to you?
1: That is about materiality. And using materials that have important meanings in them. And that that for me is a rich starting point. I think a lot of folks can get intimidated by the blank white canvas or cutting into fresh fabric. And it allows me to start with something that already has meaning. So I'm not starting with nothing. And it's a way of... Anchoring the quilt because I work improvisationally and I allow a story to evolve, especially if, if it's a diary quilt, which it has been more and more in the last few years. I don't know what's coming in the next couple of months of my life as I'm going to be working on the quilt. So it starts to feel like a real mystery of where the quilt might go and the materials and that materiality help to give the quilt a personality. I feel like I sit down and I start sewing and I think, hmm, I I wonder what you could be. And then I might add some of my old clothing to the quilt. And then suddenly it's a quilt about all these past versions of Heidi who used to wear pink sweaters and maybe doesn't anymore. Or it becomes something about a trip that I went on. Or maybe I got some fabric bags that are, you know, not disposable bags, but also maybe I don't plan to repurpose them again soon. And it gives them a place to live and it tells the story of getting that bag. I have a cloth tea bag that I got when I was traveling in India. And I think that tea bag is a, a great starting point. It's one that I mention in the website. But some of my early, early influences in college were about materiality and adding that material meaning. And we had had a guest lecture from Mark Bradford, who's one of my favorite artists. And he lives in LA and he walks the street of LA and he sees these Posters that are up that might say cash for gold or paternity test or things that are potentially preying on people in the neighborhood and he rips those signs down and then he uses them to make abstract map works of art that start on a bedsheet. Now, maybe he uses fancier substrates, but at the time he was using a bed sheet and then he was gluing this paper down and making a collage and calling it a painting. And so he'd have this on the floor and he'd use a floor sander and and he'd say, I'm painting. (laughs) (laughs) And he's adding meaning. So he's he's taking materials from going on a walk in a neighborhood and then he's making an abstract painting that looks very map-like of that walk. And there's this rich meaning in the work because of the materials that he used. Mm-hmm. And that was so inspiring to me early on. And I kept thinking, how can I do that? How can I invite more of that into my work? And I think that's One of the important reasons why I fell so hard and fast in love with quilting, because it offers such a rich and easy opportunity to find fabric and infuse the meaning of those fabrics into the work.
0: Yeah, and I I also love the phrase where you mention that you want to share a more expansive definition of what a quilt Mm -hmm. can be. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah. When I was thinking about changing careers uh, in, in moments of, of fear, I would Google the word quilt and think, "What? what is a quilter? What is this thing that I'm giving up my uh, predictable income for? And a lot of times I didn't like the things that a Google search would result in as a quilt. You know, they weren't showing a lot of gorgeous historical antique quilts. They were doing a lot of charm packs and jelly rolls and quilts that looked a little identical to each other. And and maybe you could whip up in an afternoon with your sewing machine. And I just wasn't quite sure when I would look into that if I really wanted to be a quilter. But then I would dig more and I'd go down rabbit holes on Pinterest or hunt around Instagram or look through my fiber arts magazine and, and then I'd be reassured that, yes, there are quilters doing things that spark my interest, that get me truly excited. And I was longing for that to not be so hard to find. And one of the artists who was inspiring me in that direction was Luke Haynes. So I saw Luke's quilts where he was using repurposed materials and making portraits of people and hinting at paintings from the canon of art, like Christina's world. And and I thought that there's something interesting there. And I would listen to him in podcast interviews. And he said that for him, it was really important to have something to add about the conversation of what a quilt can be. Yep. And I thought, yeah, I could be part of that conversation and I could poke at ideas that are different from what Luke's poking at. And one of the top things that excites me is the hand and being able to see the hand of the maker. And I saw so much of an effort of making that invisible. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what if, what if I pushed to make that hand visible? So when you were introducing me earlier and mentioning that aspect of the hand, I thought, oh, Yes, I'm I'm doing it. <laughs> you are. And to see
0: that full on knot, just, you know, and knots all over the quilt. And that is part of the quilt. And it makes you understand how the work was done. And it gives you
1: that notion that effort and hours were put into this quilt. I'm so glad to hear that. That is exactly the goal of making invisible work visible and unpacking some of that. And at the time, it felt like a huge faux pas. I wasn't seeing other contemporary quilters leaving their knots exposed. And I went to the Milwaukee Art Museum And we were one of the first museums to show the quilts of G's Bend. And so we are the lucky owners of a work clothes quilt by Rachel Carey George. And that quilt is on display fairly often in different parts of the museum. So it'd be like a fun friend to see occasionally in the main hall and then other times in the kids area. And whenever I looked at that quilt, I would notice the visible knots on it and they were very unique because she had cut off the tail. There was no tail waving in the wind the way that I usually do, but just the knot, and they'd be in rows or creating an arc or doing something that seemed to me to be so importantly intentional and a a pivotal aspect of the design and what was going on in the quilt visually. And I think after two or three years of looking at that quilt and longing and wondering, could I ever come up with an excuse to have a visible knot the way that Rachel Carey George did? Uh, It it was just very exciting to try that out. And at first it was with the tails cut off. It was a series called, I Know the Stars Are There Beyond the Clouds of white quilts made with bedsheets. And the bedsheets were a very important part of being awake or asleep and nighttime or daytime. And then as I continued in making quilts after that, I started to leave the tails exposed as well. And it's been such a thrill to see that become something that is frequently on my Instagram feed yeah. where I see not tails on people's quilts. And I I love seeing it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So how do you present your work to the world?
1: Hmm. There's so many different ways of unpacking that question. That's fun. So I present my work to the world on Instagram and YouTube and my website and Pinterest and have an active effort to get it seen by people. And I also apply to exhibitions and do what I can to make connections with art museums and textile museums. And then when I am displaying it or thinking about how it will be out there, I am generally thinking about the quilts vertically rather than as functional objects. I'm always sewing sleeves into the back of the quilt. I always embroider my name on the back of the quilt to help register the top and the bottom and and have it feel signed by the artist. And I always give my quilts titles. I think that there's a certain dignity in having a title and that it uh, is a reminder that I'm thinking of them as works of art. Yeah. And I I think those are the main starting points of how how I get them out there in the world. Yeah. And I think
0: another element to that, which we're going to talk a little bit about later Mm -hmm. is your teaching as well, because you're bringing some incredible education to the world through your teaching as well. So We know that you made a transition from one career to another, from high school teacher to quilter. Was there kind of a defining moment once you made that transition that you realized, yeah, this could work. This is going to be, this is what I'm going to do for a living.
1: Yes. I would say that in 2016, I submitted a whole bunch of quilts to QuiltCon. And four of them got in and two of them got awards. And then I I emailed and I said, could I maybe one day teach at QuiltCon and how does that work? And they said, sure, we can add you to the schedule in 2017. And that was so exciting to be teaching in a more uh, national way rather than somewhat local. And that Income from QuiltCon got me off of food assistance and government healthcare and onto Obamacare, which just felt huge as an income leap. And it it was a very exciting moment of feeling like, okay, maybe this will work. I'm going to be getting myself somewhere and really starting to own this new career a little bit more.
0: Yeah, that sounds so good. Now, I am so excited to dive into this conversation because I love to talk about design and everything that you do is unique. So when you see something in the world that sparks an idea for you, how do you capture that? Do you have sketchy pencil to paper or do you go completely digital or is it all just diving into the fabrics and creating from there?
1: I would say it's that last option. It's diving into the fabric. On rare occasions, I'll make a note to myself. And maybe it's more about just the act of writing it down. I don't know that I go back to those notes very frequently, but. I end up having so many ideas and so many things that are exciting to me that I need a filter because otherwise I would be very frustrated by the lack of time that I have in my one short life to make all the quilts I'm excited about. So I try to think that my memory is an important filter, does that quilt get to be made? So if I'm still thinking about it when I'm near my thread and my fabric, then that gets to be part of the quilt. And there is usually a kind of perfect storm that comes about of an interest or curiosity in a particular technique, having access to a physical fabric that I'm excited about, and then also having a conceptual interest and and something that i'm curious about and when those three things come together then i dive into making and sewing and working on that particular idea and i would say that that filtration system of not drawing and not doing other things is An incredible reason for me to be a teacher as well. That's part of why I think I I hold both so equally making my own quilts and teaching quilting is that I just, I want to see what could happen with these ideas around a diary quilt or visible hand piecing. And if I can get other people to play with having exposed knots on their quilts, then that curiosity of mine gets both quenched and reactivated more and more frequently. And and it's that digging in and wondering that keeps me moving forward with a quilt.
0: Yeah. And do you ever put you know, constraints or parameters on yourself when you're creating something like this is going to be whole cloth. This is going to be dark colors only. This is going to be like, do you ever challenge yourself by saying I have to stay within a, in a box?
1: Yes. I think that that is, is something that I have very much from art school (laughs) is, uh, is creating those rules for myself. And then uh, you know, fi- finding that nice sweet spot of pushing and fighting against the rules, but also mm-hmm. really appreciating and protecting and, and uplifting those rules. So there are certain series that I do that have a lot of rules in them. I have a neutrality study series that I just finished the fifth quilt in, and it's investigating neutral colors. Mm-hmm. And so it's a much more formal design-based series about uh, black and white and navy blue and like is red and neutral some people say it is some say it isn't uh and 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 having fun with that and also my ability to stay neutral (laughs) Uh, especially it's a series that I began in 2017 after the 2016 election and so that idea of what is it to be neutral was very interesting to me and an ability to stay neutral or deciding I know I'm going to use the whole rainbow to quilt this quilt so maybe the fabric is neutral but the the thread choices are not and then another series like that is a white scrap. Scrap quilt series. And that one I noticed that I had a lot of white scraps accumulating in my studio. I think, especially my friendship with Zach Foster nurtured me to have a greater awareness of that. He posted a photo on Instagram forever ago of a ball jar that he stored all his little thread tails in. So you know, you take three feet of, of thread and you sew with it, and at the end you have this scraggly little three inches left. And what do you do with that? I'd been putting it in the garbage and not thinking twice about it. And Zach had this ball jar and that took me back immediately to art school where every time in ceramics class where you have your discards or drawing class where you're collaging and then what about those scraps off to the side or in, in painting class? And then hmm, you're doing this interesting thing on your paint palette that no one else is doing. And what's, what's going on here with your scraps? And I thought, how could I have been so mindless as to throw my scraps away. and yeah. and so I I started keeping those thread scraps and I frequently use them for Trapunto or underneath silk transparencies now. And then I began to keep more and more of my fabric scraps as well. And I generally, to avoid decision fatigue, I back my quilts with a big piece of white, wide yardage, unbleached cotton muslin. And then at the end of making that quilt, I'll have a scrap that's 20 feet long by two inches wide. And what to do with these, you know, you have five of those, 10 of those in the studio, suddenly it becomes a big job of figuring out these white scraps. And so now I've made three white scrap quilts. And it's it's a fun task of figuring out how can I cut into them minimally, but also make it look interesting and visually engaging. And that's a series with a lot of rules that that I love working on.
0: Yeah, it's a really great way to challenge yourself. So you were Mm -hmm. just exploring the topic of lots of cream, lots of sugar, where you started with that one, and it moved on Mm -hmm. into other quilts as well. Um, And so it's fascinating to me that you have gone from, you know, taking an idea, a concept of feelings, something that's inspiring you to play with the fabric, and then you give yourself a parameter. But then from there, even after you've made the first quilt, you feel inspired to make a series. So how do you know when you're done?
1: Mm. Yeah, done with a series, I guess, is just when you stop naming quilts with that same <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You run out of the fabric, right? <laughs> Maybe, right? Yeah, you stop having that problem altogether. If I shifted things and I didn't have that problem anymore, it wouldn't be so engaging. But um, you know, to date, there's four scrap quilts in that white scrap series. And I would say something that happens and that my students will get stuck on a lot of times in class is they'll start playing chess in their head and they'll feel like, oh, you know, I could go this way or could go that way. And what, where will that fork in the road lead to? And, and they stop making and they start wondering about this fork in the road that they don't want to make the wrong choice. And for me, I'll just take note that there was a fork in the road and I'll go with whichever one usually feels more convenient for my body to to do whatever sounds more pleasant and then I'll think about the road that I didn't take and oh well that's the next piece in the series then. So for example the most recent quilt uh, Pearl Ice Ash is one that has a lot of applique on a larger whole cloth. Because right, the definition of what is a white scrap yeah. in my studio is starting to evolve and change too. So now I might have a piece of fabric that's one foot by two foot, and I'll think, I can't put it on the bookshelf where I store my fabric. It's in the bin with the white scraps. It might not be a two inch by two inch you know, scrap anymore, but that it, it's it's just as much of a problem as the other ones. Yeah. So there's that problem. And then there's also the pieces that were so small that they really were inconvenient to use my sewing machine with, or I didn't want to try to piece them into something. And so those two types of fabric that I wasn't using in the previous quilt, then it becomes an opportunity of, oh, well, that tiny thing or that very strange shape can get applicated on top of my one foot square base. And then that's a way to use up those scraps and solve that problem in the studio. And maybe, you know, it wasn't the low hanging fruit problem that got solved in the first iteration of the quilt, but that type of thing is part of what keeps me going and energized with a series like that.
0: Yeah. And one thing I love about how you're bringing things to the world, like even on your Instagram and everything, is that there's no push to say what anyone's doing is not okay. Everything's okay. But there is a push from your direction to have that conversation about hand piecing and knots and improvisation and patchwork. And what is it about these practices that really resonates with you as a maker?
1: It's got to be the presence of the maker's hand. Mm-hmm. and And then that's very exciting to me. And then I would say some of the some of the controversies, right? is I'll have students who want to make things faster potentially, or they just mm-hmm. don't have the experience. Maybe their fingers aren't quite yet as nimble as mine are. And so then they'll say they'll bring up things about raw edges, right? Oh, couldn't couldn't you make something faster and easier with raw edges? And I'll say, you totally can. That's yeah. wonderful, but raw edges are just not for me. Thank you very much <laughs> yeah. and and, you know, it's fun to sort of ponder why is that not for me? Is that a limiting belief that I could break through and I could start to do more raw edge things? Or is there something really interesting that, you know, you're in a room with a hundred quilts, One of them is by Heidi Parks. And can you stand at a distance and, point out my quilt. And and it's part of that maybe aversion to raw edge and desire to turn everything and have it be just so that, that makes it mine and that I don't have to unpack or fight against that tendency that I have to have nice tidy edges. Mm -hmm. Um, Another kind of controversial element is overlapping. It's not typically my first instinct to overlap things. Mm -hmm. I generally put them side by side. And that's one that I have been pushing myself with more. Why? Why do I isolate my fabrics so much like that? And so the raw edge, I've eh, no. It's it's just not for me. But overlapping, I keep seeing opportunities where oh. But what if, what if I could say yes, and in that location, yeah. what if things did overlap? And so then even as I'm doing it, I'll think, oh, my friend, Amanda Nadig would be proud of me for overlapping this fabric right now. <laughs> and, and it's all those little moments that are like idiosyncrasies that I have that, that, that are so fun to have conversations with students and to try to give them permission and say, raw edge could 100% be your jam. Like just cause it's not for me, it's not better or worse or less than it's just you finding what gravitates to you, what feels right for your body. Uh, but you know, another aspect that I like is around productivity because so much of the raw edge, I think does come from a desire to make more faster. And how many quilts do you really need to make in a year? And how much time do you want to invest in one single quilt? And so for me, I think maybe part of my aversion to raw edge is like, I don't want to be done with a quilt that fast it it would be unpleasant to arrive at the finish line that quickly and to not have the time of turning the edge and figuring things out to then decide well what's the next thing i'm going to add to the quilt so for me potentially that slowing down and also that investment in if if i make 40 quilts in a year that means i also have to photograph and title and price 40 quilts and so that sounds but tedious my yeah. least favorite part of making a quilt is the photograph so yeah so, so sticking to a certain number or a certain size can also feel really good
0: Yeah. yeah, And it's so good that you're exploring what you do have aversions to or not. And you're trying Mm -hmm. to decide if you want to change that because so many of us out there as quilters, uh, like for instance, in English paper piecing, we're trying so hard to use the thinnest thread and hide our stitches and have them on the back so that when you see that hexagon English paper piecing, literally cannot see a stitch. But, you know, I see so much value in using a a thick chunky thread that might be rainbow or variegated or whatever and then when you turn that you can see all your uneven stitches but it's consistent throughout the quilt and that's just a joyful component right so there's a lot of different ways you can look at things and it doesn't have to be a certain way it has to be what works for you that's the message I'm getting from you right now
1: Heidi. Yes, yes. And I would say something so related to that, that's the origin story of me moving from machine piecing to hand piecing, is that I went to Seoul in South Korea in 2015. And I learned to make bojagi. And I learned the Korean patchwork technique of jogakbo. I learned from Sam Zazarang, and was there visiting my favorite roommate from college at the Art Institute. And When you are making a bojagi, it's that same whip stitch that you use in English paper piecing, except you stab through in a slightly different way where the whole point of the art form is that very colorful line between pieces of fabric instead of that juxtaposition of two different shapes that are different colors from one another. And that focus on the thread color and the line blew me away. It made me think completely differently about how I was making quilts and what I was investing time and energy into.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if you are listening right now and you're thinking, I need to find out more about Heidi Parks, let's share (laughs) a little bit about the website. So what is your website and what's the name of it? And what can we find there?
1: HeidiParks.com. And as you mentioned before, there is an E in parks. And what kind of things are we going to find on your website? I've got a lot of different tabs on the website. There's the gallery, and that's what we've been mentioning the most. That's where you can look at the beautiful quilts that I've made, and they're all in chronological order. So the newest quilt will be at the tippy top there. I also have an about page and there you can watch a little three minute video about me. You can read my artist statement and you can find a lot of the upcoming exhibitions, places where you can see me or see my quilts in person. And that's where this podcast will be linked as well on the about page. I have a tab for mending where you can see the mending that I do for clothing. I have a shop. And that shop is an exciting tab because you can buy physical quilts from me, and you can also learn on demand with pre-recorded classes, and you can sign up for classes that I might be teaching on Zoom. The workshops tab is a place where you can find in-person workshops or workshops that I'm teaching that might be hosted or sold by someone other than me. And I've got a blog with occasional, maybe twice a year updates about quilt alongs and an opportunity to work on one of my quilt patterns in community with other people. And then lastly, contact where you can reach out to me.
0: Yeah. One thing that I want to highlight that I really love is that, um, the so workshops look so great, like framed quilts on demand. That looks like so much fun. That looks so achievable. If you're just getting into hand stitching at small pieces and they're framed, you can put them right on your wall. Fabric fosses on demand. That looks really cool.
1: What I love about those two classes is that they're a quick way to start. And also you get to learn start to finish how to make something in one class, Mm -hmm. a class like improv hand quilting. You're going to learn the hand quilting part and you could make a whole cloth quilt, but otherwise you also need a class on a quilt top or a pattern like my vignettes quilt pattern where you would learn the quilt top part. And then I also have a separate binding class. So some of them, like you kind of need three classes in order to have one finished object, but the framed quilts, the vases, and the brooches, you can learn everything you need in one go. It's a complete package.
0: Yeah, it looks like so much fun. So while we're here on workshops, let's just talk about which classes are your most popular. And also tell us what you teach live for guilds and at shows and what you have on demand. Like what's the difference there?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love unpacking that because both of those parts of the website are real rabbit holes that you can go down. In the on-demand section, I would say that the framed quilts class is my most popular class. I think it's the one I've sold Most this year. And then right after that would be the vignettes quilt video workshop. That is a quilt pattern inspired by the elements and principles of art. And I guide you through making all different quilt blocks. And then I show you how to sew them together in a vignettes approach, meaning that the blocks aren't all the same size as each other. So you could have a long, skinny block, and then a very short, small block, and then a great big sack rectangle. And yeah. I teach you some interesting problem-solving techniques for how to sew those to each other. And it's a class that incorporates piecing with a machine and by hand. So those two have really been the most popular this year. If there was
0: one class you love teaching the most, which is your favorite?
1: Mm. So my favorite class to teach is one that I'm teaching online right now on Zoom, and it's in the Learn tab of the shop currently. It's a diary quilting class, and I've got about 60 students right now, and they are joining me on Sundays for class, as well as twice a week for open co-working time and mingling. And we are together exploring this idea of diary quilting. And for me, it's the most engaging to teach in person because every student is so unique and the stories that I'm getting to learn about and to help the students share and unpack are fascinating to me. There are folks making diary quilts about how they're playing the cello again and they love it. And there are people processing grief if they've lost a loved one. There are folks who are working on Owning the title of being an artist, because sometimes saying those words, I'm a quilter or I'm an artist can sound foreign. And how do you get that to feel comfortable rolling off your tongue? So all all of those things, whatever it is that's happening in an everyday way, as well as maybe there's a goal you're working towards or a past thing you're, you're hoping to process and do some cognitive reframing so that the past can feel less prickly, that that is super exciting for me. And that's a class that I'm teaching now. And if you... Were to move from the shop over to that workshops tab, you'll see that that's a type of class that I teach in person pretty often as well. So if I am traveling with students, uh, that would be a travel diary quilt that we might do together and process the trip. Or in person, sometimes I'll teach a diary quilting class and we'll spend five days together and work on on those ideas around diary quilting. And there, there's some fun rabbit holes in that workshops tab as well around my guild page. So if you have a quilt guild and you're interested in having me out, you can actually chip in together to buy whole guild access for my on-demand classes. So everyone in your guild could have access to my scrap quilt class or the framed quilt class, but you can also start to understand my structure for coming out for a virtual workshop or for an in-person workshop. I'm just finishing up a contract with a guild on the East coast right now to have me come out for one of those. And it's a lot of fun because we're co-creating what I'll do there they, they know they're going to have me for a handful of days, and it's it's a lot of fun figuring out trunk shows and different classes and and what they're going to do for their on-demand option as well. They're going to make sure that everyone before I come out has access to the scrap quilting class, and then when I arrive, they'll be able to show me their scrap quilts and the progress from having learned from me online, and I think it's going to be a great way to build community within the guild.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're listening right now, it's mid-November when this podcast Mm -hmm. will come out. So if you feel like you've missed that diary class, just get on Heidi's newsletter or email Mm -hmm. list and you'll be able to see all the new stuff that is coming every
1: time. The newsletter will be the first place to find out about a diary quilting class. And in the meantime, on my YouTube channel, which of course is also just my name, that has a whole series on diary quilting. I think I've got seven episodes at this point. So if that's, a concept that has you chewing and thinking it could be interesting, that would be great learning to do so that you're ready when the next diary quilting series comes along, you'll have some of that information. Yeah. I also have two classes that I taught with creative bug and those right. creative bug classes are available all the time. They're some of the most affordable ways to learn with me and both of those Quilt patterns that I've done are ways to dip your toe very gently, really in a supported atmosphere into that realm of diary quilting and making one of those first. And then when a Zoom offering live comes around for diary quilting, you'll be so well prepared. I I truly do notice a difference in students who've gotten to have those experiences first and then they join the online class. I think they're really nimble and ready to jump in and have a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. And I love how you have this wide range of uh, ways that people can access your teaching from free on YouTube all the way to stitching with you in Japan, right? (laughs) So, you know, it's it's like a wide range. I I remember talking to you about this a little earlier when you mentioned arc of accessibility. So tell Mm -hmm. me about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, as someone who's previously been on food assistance and hasn't had a lot of money to spend on learning how to make quilts, I love to watch things on YouTube first or to dig through everyone's past posts on Instagram, right? Usually you think of Instagram as it's dead and gone after a month and no one will ever see it again. But I was the tenacious person who went back and went through the last five years of someone's Instagram feed. And there's incredible information there. And it's great to be able to watch people grow and see how their quilts change as they become better known or as they, their career changes. So, Instagram, YouTube, things like that. I love having as free resources and even things like Pinterest, I think are a little more evergreen where I post something on there and it can still be found in a search result two years later. Yeah. Then after that, I've got creative bug because with the links that I provide, you can get a 60 day free trial to creative bug. It's plenty of time to make one of my quilt patterns. They're usually about four hours to watch those patterns, and I have a lot of other shorter 30-minute quick projects on Creative Bug as well. And then my on-demand classes are still under $100, and you can take them whenever you want, and they're classes that I taught several times in the past. I felt like I had gotten it right, and I did it once on Zoom, and now you can access the recording of that class. And then for things that are over $100, it would be learning live with me on Zoom, on the internet, or starting to take a class in person, whether it's a one-day class that maybe I'm teaching locally at the Wisconsin Museum of Quilts and Fiber Art, or if it's something that's a little bit of a longer structure. So at the tippy top end of ways to learn with me, this July I'll be teaching in Sardinia in Italy. The registration for that will be opening in November. So there might still be spaces for that available. And in January of this upcoming year, I will be starting to teach a year-long class with me on Zoom, where I'll get to intimately know 30 students and work with them every single month for the year. And I've been longing for that kind of long-term interaction where I get to truly know my students. It's an opportunity for us to both know each other really well and not that kind of quick interaction or certainly an on-demand, which is very one-directional. So I'm i just thrilled to be able to offer things like that at a a more expensive price point. But, uh, you know, feeling so proud and confident of the things that are at the very beginning entry point there. Uh, I've got over 22 episodes of soft bulk on my YouTube channel, the conversations that I've had with Luke Haynes and Zach Foster and our guests and lots of free tutorials and ways of learning that I think if if you're thirsty enough, you can learn a whole lot from me for free.
0: Yeah. And now I want to talk a little bit about some of the collaborations you've done. So tell us about what you did with Zach and Luke.
1: We were excited to have a conversation about this thing that we identified as soft bulk, which is the way of it. Quilts, Live in a space that's in between being two-dimensional art and three-dimensional art. A quilt can lay flat on a wall the way that a painting does, but a quilt can also sag on a wall from corner to corner the way that an Eva Hess sculpture can. And they can also be folded and stacked into a tower. They can be crumpled and piled in a big pile on the floor. And that felt very, very interesting for us to explore. So we thought we were going to have a one-time on Zoom conversation about soft bulk, and people really liked it. And so we thought, let's get together and talk about other things. So we did a second episode with Audrey Essery about time management, and then it just grew from there with lots of different guests joining us and having conversations with people who are quilt collectors and curators like Roderick Kirikoff and other other quilters like Mara Grace Ambrose and Quilter Fussil. It was an awesome project. Yeah, that sounds so great. And then you are also worked
0: with Tara Fonen and what did you do with her?
1: Yeah, Tara and I teamed up with Carolyn Friedlander and Libs Elliott, and the four of us taught a class called Creative Habits. And we are just big cheerleaders of each other. We get together every other Monday morning and talk about how life is going, how our careers are, what we're digging into. They are one of the reasons why I am working on Pinterest more lately. They've turned me on to that evergreen quality of it that's very exciting. And, um, yeah. So, so I just, I really love their work and I love them as savvy businesswomen who I get to connect with. Yeah. It sounds
0: like a lot of fun. And now of course, you know, that I interviewed Zach. He actually will have just aired a week ago on the podcast when this podcast airs, but he mentioned that you guys made a quilt together in a collaboration. So tell us about that.
1: Oh, yeah. It was really fun. It was our excuse to have Zach come out and visit me in June. And we also went to one of my annual favorites, the Rummage at the Wisconsin Museum of Quilts and Fiber Art. When we were there, we bought some fabric and then Zach and I started to collaborate both with that fabric and some other fabric that I had sitting around. And we were trying to think of something that we could work on together while in the same room. And then also continue to work on separately. And that created some interesting problems to solve. So I thought it would be fun to have Zach try his hand at my whole cloth base approach. So we started with a big cut of fabric and then we chopped through it at sort of a diagonal so that we could each have it in our hands and not be tugging on opposite sides so we could work comfortably. And Zach took a smaller third of it home with him to Brooklyn and kept working. And I had the rest of it here at my house. And I finished that part and quilted it up and added some surprises for Zach. A fun thing about us is I love rabbits. And Zach feels like his animal familiar, the animal that he's most connected to is a deer. So I added a a beautiful deer resting in some grass, laying down on the quilt, and I put two bunnies. And, you know, it was a lot of fun for me to add. And then I mailed it off to Zach, and he got so inspired by all the surprises that I put in for him that then he added lots of additional surprises and details and sewed those two sides of the quilt back together and he finished the binding. And so he's seen it completed. I've just seen the photographs, but it is a beautiful collaboration and just felt so exciting to start something in June and have it be completed in September and, and follow that arc of the summer. And the, the big theme, right? Because there's there's a technique and there's a fabric. And so then I also, to for me, have that full trinity of things that get me excited for a quilt, is this concept that we came up with with the text of yes, more please. And that's big and bold on the surface of the quilt. And Zach and I were just feeling so excited about the current moment of being able to both be full-time quilters like how incredible like with sustainable yeah. careers in the arts and feeling very lucky to have that and just wanting to to say to the universe yes more please we are so excited about that ability. And then there was kind of a funny irony too because we had previously talked about 2023 as being the year of no. We <laughs> we were so so really opposite, but we had both found ourselves sometimes a little bit stretched too thin with too many pots on the stove, too many projects going on. It's part of why we let go of soft bulk and said it could just be an occasional thing instead of every month. And and that that very interesting mix of focusing on streamlining, on only only taking on the projects that are the most exciting because we want to give our all to them. And then also at the same time saying yes, more please together. So that's a little bit of what's really beautiful and energetic about the quilt, maybe even in that realm of casting a spell and inviting something in particular into our futures.
0: Yeah. And, well, and you both had wonderful descriptions of that project and how much fun it was. So I know that one of the most common questions when you are teaching or speaking is, what kind of products do you use? And I, I know that the focus should be on the glory of what you've made and everything like that. But quilters want to know, what are your mm-hmm. favorite things that you love to use?
1: So on my website, I have a page that is linked to frequently, but it's not a tab at the top. However, it's HeidiParks.com slash my-favorite-supplies. Mm. And I have lots of beautiful links to the answers to all of those questions. And the top request that I get, i give a beautiful lecture to a quilt guild or some space. <laughs> and then the first question is usually, what thread do you use? So I use DMC pearl cotton size eight. And if you want to be even more specific, my favorite color is red-orange color 606. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a fun trivia question for sure. And I love that thread. And I wrote an article about thread for Curated Quilts magazine several years ago. I love it because it's mercerized. So it's strong. It holds knots well because it's got that ropey twist in it. I find it very easy to thread on a milliner's needle from Dritz size number 7. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it has that thickness where it can be very visual and abundant and it supports that idea that I have of focusing on the hand. Yeah. On occasion, I also like using crochet cotton, usually Aunt Lydia's size 10 for the same reason. And because this company Snuggly Monkey has the most beautiful sashiko threads that are variegated, sometimes I'll use sashiko thread from Cosimo and Daruma. And the reason why I got into Snuggly Monkey in the first place is they are one of the only distributors of the Little House Gripping Thimble. Mm -hmm. And I searched high and low. When I was in Korea in 2015, I was introduced to the concept of the gripping thimble, and I had previously been putting Band-Aids on my fingers to solve this problem of how do you pull the needle through to the other side? The thimble pushes, but then what pulls? And in Japan and Korea, they had a lot more options for gripping and pulling thimbles than we had at the time. Now Clover has one that's fine, but my heart truly belongs to the little house gripping thimble and that's carried by Snuggly Monkey at the very, very top of that supply page. You can see my hand wearing my favorite thimbles and my favorite pushing thimble is the clover protect and grip thimble. And that one really gets to a story that is the origin of hand yoga and why so much of my YouTube channel is committed to sharing about hand yoga. Yeah. I used to use a metal thimble and it was squeezing my finger with just the right pressure in just the wrong way that I got some nerve damage on the side of my ring finger, which is this finger that I use for my thimble. And it just to unload the dishwasher would hit my finger in exactly the wrong way. And there'd be shooting pain from my finger to my shoulder and switching to the silicon based uh, Clover protect and grip thimble was very helpful. It still has a metal tip that I can use to push, but it's a gentler, softer grip on my finger. And then even six months after changing to that thimble. I wasn't worsening the damage, but I wasn't better yet either. So that's what sent me to occupational therapy. And then I learned a lot about how to make that occupational therapy more pleasant to do by using some of the techniques I already knew about yoga and yoga therapy. So that's the, the origin story of me doing hand yoga. And I'm very happy to say I have no pain in my finger right now. But it's that constant relationship with my body and my hands and noticing, do I feel good? Or if there's pain, what can I do about it? And how can I support my body and and listen to it? And, And so those are my two very favorite supplies are the thimbles. I'll play with different thread. And I even used some yarn in my most recent neutrality study quilt. But the thimbles are are my absolute favorite supplies. Yeah, great suggestion. And we'll make sure that we
0: have links to that in the show notes, of course. And uh, I wanna talk a little bit more about the hand yoga after the break, but right now I wanna get into the quilts. So let's talk about first how how you come up with names for your quilts. You had one called, I Know the Stars Are There Beyond the Clouds and you did a series of eight, right? What inspires you to come up with those names? They're all so cool.
1: So that was a quilt series where the name came first. I was reading a book by Harville Hendricks called Getting the Love You Want, suggested by my therapist. <laughs> Post, post-canceling my wedding two weeks before the wedding was supposed to happen. So anyways, I was reading several um, books about healthy relationships and how I might move forward in a healthy way. And in that book, they talk about the unconscious mind and how that influences who you fall in love with and why. And he says that the unconscious mind is as influential as the stars. And so you think, "Eh, it's daytime, there are no stars. They haven't come out yet. And he says, oh no, think about a night with a new moon and looking at the stars through a big telescope on a clear night, they are always that influential. They are always there. The stars do not disappear in the day and come out at night. They are just as much there during the day. You just can't see them for the blue sky and the sun and the light. And and I thought... I like that idea. I want to remember that. And so I came up with that title and then started to work with bedsheets and and other things. And, you know, an interesting part of why that series ended was because the rules were a little bit too strict. The rules were about the technique. So that quilt was always made with bedsheets. The series was always about a third of an inch gap between rows of stitching. There's always white applique circles, always Bojagi stitches in between. And that's how I knew it was part of that series. And it didn't have enough room to grow. I I changed the size several times. I made one that was 11 and a half feet wide. I made some that were eight inches square. And then once I'd made all the sizes, I kind of didn't have enough space to stretch and grow and move from there. So that was part of what ended that series was the rules being too strict.
0: Yeah, you always have so much fun with the names, like you have some called Magical Thinking and Scavenger Hunt, so so tell us about some
1: of those. So the Magical Thinking Attempt series began, again, from some health problems. I was having uh, just terrible female hormonal monthly problems and was seeing my doctor and was incredibly frustrated after having been put under for surgery. And they're like, eh, we still don't know what's going on with you. We're not sure what to do and have no options for making you feel better. Maybe you should see a naturopath out of pocket. That's not covered by your insurance. And I was doing that, but I also, because I'm a quilter, thankfully, I have a lot of time to sew and learn. And I went down a lot of different YouTube rabbit holes for solutions and one of them was to make a yonmi painting and so long story short I made that series initially by using my own blood to dye fabric as a way of casting a spell and I was making it from this really sour point of view initially that the health system has failed me so terribly that the only advice that I'm left with is from YouTube in this new age circle that thinks making a painting will make me better. <laughs> and, and, and so from that very bitter starting point, it got me to the first person who I told about that quilt series was my therapist. And he started talking to me about how when you're in pain, you can start to other certain parts of your body and feel estranged from them. So it can be my bad arm, my bad foot, and not even, you know, just, oh, that, like that thing over there, that's not part of me. And by trying to make this material beautiful, to make a work of art that I felt proud of, it was in a lot of ways accepting that as part of myself and also becoming much more comfortable talking to my doctors about my symptoms that I had really been culturally trained to feel shy about expressing and advocating for myself. So the first several pieces in that series were all very constrained by that material. And then once I started to feel better, I thought, hmm, is that series over? But, but, People like it so much. It was at QuiltCon, and I was a finalist for the Mary Knoll Fellowship here in Milwaukee twice because the jurors liked that series so much. And I thought, you know, do I have to be in pain in order to make good art? That's sort of depressing, also. Mm-hmm. And and so then I thought, no, I can expand the parameters of this series to be bigger and more inclusive. And I was having a different physical body problem of having floaters in my eyes, and so. My friend Zach Foster and I actually worked on that quilt in tandem when he was in town in 2022. And I made attempt number seven, and it was an attempt to fix my eyes. And then attempt number eight was one for my romantic relationship. Bo and I were having some growing pains and our, you know, when you keep, you gotta redefine. And if you if you're not growing, what are you doing? You're stuck. And as we were starting to figure out how to picture our next way forward as a couple, I felt like we needed a quilt to cast a spell for the good of our relationship. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that quilt magical thinking attempt number eight was a very exciting departure from just being about a depressing health problem and Mm -hmm. into how can I steer the ship of my life and wish for things that I want in the future and cast a spell to get them with a quilt. So it's, it's been fun to allow that title to grow with me instead of letting it get stuck and stop when, when I was tired of using that material and that technique.
0: Yeah. And it's so fascinating to see how you're exploring the issues or the positive or negative in your life Mm -hmm. through your quilting. Okay. So let's, let's talk about a few more quilts.
1: It's very convenient when I have titles that I just add a number to the next one like those, but some of my favorite titles are more unique than that. And I'll choose a collection of words that I feel like represent that particular quilt. And that's how I title a lot of my diary quilts. So, Right now, I actually have a quilt that is done and signed with a sleeve on it. And yet it doesn't have a title because I'm still playing around a little bit with words for that title. And it could be um, some of the words that I'm playing with for it are streamline, warmth, um, tug, sweaters, um, grapes and raisins. And, 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 so I'm, I'm playing to get just the right collection as well as the white scrap quilts that we talked about before. Those are each, they get a unique collection of words. So the first is uh, lots of cream, lots of sugar. And that one was titled from Pulp Fiction. (laughs) It's a Quentin Tarantino movie quote. But then from that, the next quilts in the series were cream, sugar, snow, and thinking about things that are white and also complicated, right? Dairy is complicated. Sugar is complicated, snow. I love the winter, but for a lot of people, snow is complicated (laughs) and and dealing with scraps can be complicated. The most recent quilt in that series is Pearl Ice Ash. And I loved the layering that happens with, with those words. There's something real interesting about them. And also they're mainly white. But also a grayness. And that series has more transparent white fabric. So it gives this illusion of more gray in the quilt. And that was a fun, fun set of words to work on. One of my favorite quilts is. Muse Pandemic Invisible Sweetheart, and it's a quilt that I worked on at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was thinking about my sweetheart, Beau, when I included the title sweetheart in it because he was in my pandemic bubble. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun for me to use multiple words. And I would say that the origin of why I do that is Mark Bradford, who I talked about before. One of my favorite quilt titles from him is Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I loved the the commas and the the way that that work of art looks. And, and I thought, oh, okay, commas. And somewhat recently, I was able to name a quilt Mimi, Mimi, Mimi. And Mimi is the name that I have for my grandma, the same grandma who is my origin story as a quilter. And, and so it was really fun to come full circle and have something that felt like an answer to daddy, daddy, daddy after doing so many other comma quilts yeah so what is verdant yeah verdant so lush green abundant nature that quilt i made when i was looking back at 2021 and thinking my goodness what a good year this was to be heidi parks i feel so lucky and i associated the color green with luck as well as with the heart chakra with my yoga training, I think a lot about each chakra and its color yeah. that's connected to it. So it felt like a very heart filled year. And like a year that I was very lucky to be in relationship and, and very stable with Bo that year. So verdant, aim, nimble, soften are all year- words that felt like they were part, part of that year and for some people it's real obvious when they look at the quilt and others it's a slow burn that there are 365 circles and if you start on the top left that is January 2021 seven circles across and representing that month and it's in a u-shape so not your typical shape to look at calendar months but it went through and uh it surprised me as a quilt. I thought I was going to do the calendars for the year and then add all kinds of other data. And it just turned out to be very engaging to just focus on the calendar. And the circles kept getting bigger and bigger, almost as though the things further in the past were smaller. But as I came to months that were more and more recent, December's circles are a lot larger than January's. And it, it was interesting to see that evolve as I made it. And so what happened with the color scheme in May and July? Oh, that's a very popular question. So there's a lot of code that I use when I am making quilts. And I love talking about diary quilts and how code is helpful for keeping secrets or unpacking things. And it's actually... May, July and August, August yeah. all made with just one fabric. Yeah. And the code that I created in the quilt was that on a day where I was working and actively teaching whether on Zoom or in person, that would be a dark green. And within the month where I was using all different colors, because it was so fun to focus on the abundance, those teaching days would all be one kind of fabric for the day. So you can go through and you can see those clumps of similar dark greens for each month. And I got to May and I thought, oh, well, there aren't any days where I would do a dark green circle because I wasn't doing any teaching that month and and so I thought, oh wow, I didn't realize I had that many moments of rest in that year. It's a quilt about working hard and feeling, you know for the first time financially abundant. And yet I wasn't working 24 seven. How like un-American of me, but also <laughs> how, you know, how interesting and how helpful. And, and so to note those moments of pause and rest, I wanted them to be just one fabric.
0: Yeah. Okay. The last one I think we should mm-hmm. touch on a little bit
1: more is the Vignettes Quilt Series. Absolutely. So I really love, writing quilt patterns, and it was something that I thought I was never going to do and that I would not like because it seemed so boring to have somebody try to make an identical copy of something that I had made. I didn't feel excited about the process of measuring a quilt that was finished and and creating a pattern and wasn't particularly excited about seeing the results of that. And then I had an idea about a prompt-based quilt pattern. And that's when I made my scavenger hunt quilt pattern, which is the first one. And then I did the moon improv quilt pattern. And then the third one was this vignettes quilt pattern. And this one I especially love because the idea was to empower quilters to feel more familiar with art Vocabulary and art language, and so that same topic that students are asking and digging into in my current diary quilting class, they were asking about and digging into at that time too. I think it's a constant point of tension with quilts and art, and quilts are art. And how do we, you know, how how do we understand that a little bit more deeply and talk about it more? And also, how do we start to feel more comfortable as quilters? move between both the quilt world and the art world and acknowledging that they're kind of two separate worlds, but also overlapping worlds. uh, I thought that it would be empowering to get into those vocabulary words. So the vignette's quilt pattern starts out by having people make a block of any size, any shape in the elements of art. So we get into color, shape, texture, those basic building blocks of making art. And it's the prompts are almost so simple that they're hard again, (laughs) because you could just use a striped fabric to make that block, but you could also do a contour line drawing of your face to answer that prompt. And where on that spectrum of effort and ease do you want your response about line to fall? Then the next set of prompts is actually the postmodern principles of art, which were defined by Olivia Good in an article that she wrote years ago, And then I adjusted them a little bit. I really love the concept of economy. So I threw that in there because it's my quilt pattern. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the postmodern principles get into the words that are the trickiest and the most conceptual and certainly the things that I focused on the most when I was an art student at the Art Institute of Chicago. So juxtaposition, appropriation, recontextualization, these are big long words that artists use that can be intimidating or confusing to other people. But when you unpack them as I do in the pattern and especially in the video workshop, they start to become very approachable and easier and more palatable. And then there are other postmodern principles around representation and seeing yourself in your art and gazing and acknowledging that there's a viewer and acknowledging that you, the artist might be looking back. Things like layering can be very complicated and interesting and even technology There's a technology component of being able to make many versions of something quickly or easily that's fun to explore. And so, once you have your vignette blocks for all of those elements and postmodern principles, then I guide the maker in using the principles of art to assemble all of those blocks together things like unity, rhythm, pattern those ways of, of looking at a work in art of art and seeing does it sing does it look right is the visual mute movement working or does it yeah. feel off is there a focal point or is there purposefully no focal point yeah. and assembling them that way and then also teaching that really tricky fun technique of how do you piece blocks that don't match each other how do you technically get them to fit which is that origin of it being called the vignettes quilt is just it's a super fun pattern and I've made two of them at this point and they're very different looking quilts to look at them you might not know they were made from the same pattern yeah But for example, on Pinterest, I have a board that I've made just of the vignettes quilt pattern. And whenever I notice another completed vignettes quilt in the world, I try to add it to that board and getting to look at them all together completed, you do start to understand that there is something similar happening as people explore those vocabulary words and that approach to making. Yeah, that's such a unique
0: take on quilt pattern design. Okay. So can you give us some of your favorite quilting events you've attended or any quilt travel highlights you've had in your quilting career?
1: I was recently teaching in France and it was very exciting to teach internationally in person for the first time. One of the very special things that we did was the last three days of the trip was in Paris and Rebecca Devaney took us on her textile tours of Paris. And these are beautifully curated tours of the flea market and all the different places to shop and buy ribbon and buy lace and buy all all the things. And she has these beautiful PDFs on her website where you can create your own textile tour. She describes the shops and tells you the hours and how to get there. But getting to go with her in person with my students was so fun, so special. So that was a, a really unique traveling experience. I also love to travel every year for QuiltCon to see the new quilts from the Modern Quilt Guild. And I've taught previously in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And that's another place that's on my bucket list to keep returning to. My grandma Mimi lived in Santa Fe for 10 years when I was young. And I have beautiful memories with her there. So getting to be inspired by the desert is a another. Thing that I would love to do again and again, but it was great fun getting to teach there uh, once. And then the next most upcoming place that I'll be teaching is Sardinia in Italy. I've been there a couple times before, and it's a blue zone. It's a place where people live to over a hundred with great frequency, and mm-hmm. it's the place that has the most both men and women who are making it to being in their hundreds. And it's also a place that was near and dear to Anthony Bourdain's heart. And he is someone who got me to be a more curious person. I used to be very afraid of strange food. And it was the gateway for me to feeling more curious. And I think that for me, curiosity is such an important origin point for why, why I make the quilts I do, why I teach the way that I teach, and getting to go to one of those places that sparked curiosity for me and has such interesting air and beaches and murals. There's a town called Argasolo that's famous for their anarchist murals because while Sardinia is part of Italy, they feel very independent. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so it's a joy to get to see that in their art there. And that's the the place that I'm excited to be traveling to in the future.
0: Yeah, that's so great. And tell us a little bit about your artist residency in Wisconsin last summer.
1: Yeah, I was doing I did a solo show in Wausau, Wisconsin at the Lee Yaki Woodson Art Museum. And it was so special to see just my quilts in a room altogether. The theme of that show was around repurposing. So there was a focus when we curated the quilts in that show to be quilts that had a lot of materiality and interesting repurposed things. And then when I was there for the residency, I got to teach hand yoga live to people. And I shared a lecture and we did lots of drop-in Sewing classes. And they have a program called Art Beyond Sight, where I got to teach about a dozen people who were vision impaired or blind. And teaching them how to sew was just an absolute thrill. It was so special. And it got me to look at, or maybe not look at, but think about quilting from a very different angle. And while I was there, I quilted uh, a a recent diary quilt, that quilt that I have not named yet. And it was a very special opportunity to get to have some focused time of sewing. For me, that's one of the real joys of a residency is having a reason and a purpose to prioritize the actual making of my art.
0: Yeah. Residencies kind of sound like a dream to me. I've never been on one and I've always dreamed of trying that. Um, But can you imagine just having a week or two away? That
1: would be so great. (laughs) It is, you know, and with residencies, it's just a fascinating area because it's not like formal education. A residency can be structured absolutely any way under the sun. The Mm -hmm. first artist residency that I ever did, I paid to go be an artist in residence. Mm -hmm. This residency, I was paid to be an artist in residence. Some residencies, money doesn't change hands at all. But the last residency that I did before the one at the museum was a year-long residency called the Art Servancy. And they they paid me just a small amount of money. But the idea was to work in community with a dozen artists total. And we all chose an area of land in the Milwaukee area that we wanted to form a deeper bond with. And so whatever that meant to me of going frequently to Lake Park to experience nature there and then find out and discover how it would impact and influence my art. Um, one of the things that I love about it the most is that I didn't have any actual larger permission than any other citizen of Milwaukee or tourist or visitor. Um, I just chose to do that. And so making your own residency and deciding I'm going to form a deeper relationship with nature this year is something that anyone can do. But having that formal structure and getting to check in with fellow artists made made it a very special experience.
0: Yeah. Okay. So tell us about some of your lectures. Are there some popular ones or ones that you like to do most?
1: I have a list of about 10 different lecture options on my website, but I'm encouraging folks To do the trunk show option, because then we get to hold up the quilts and I get to share with them in real time and tell some of the stories of the quilts. And we walk them around so everyone can see them closer. And generally, I like to mix that with hand yoga. So maybe we'll do 10 minute warm up to get centered and focused and move our hands. And then I'll share for the next either 35 minutes or 50 minutes about the quilts themselves in person.
0: So this next question is my favorite question that I ask every guest on my show, and it is in your quilting world, what brings you joy?
1: Mm. It brings me joy to see the quilts that are made by people who are inspired by me, like Mm. just absolute incredible joy to be in my diary quilting class and to get to see the progress of these 60 students is just blowing me away, both the like emotional healing that they're doing and the excitement that they feel around these quilts and then the physical beauty of the quilts themselves. Every time I do a quilt along on Instagram and I get to see the progress of one of my quilt patterns, uh, that just ex expansive way of more people highlighting their hands, more people asking questions and healing and and thinking about quilts in this way that I find very interesting. It just lights me up to get to see the wider results that I I would never be able to make that many quilts in 10 lifetimes. And to get to see that exploration is the most joy producing thing that I get to, to experience.
0: Oh, it's so nice to see that that lights you up. Okay, so right now we are going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk all about Heidi's studio space, her hand yoga therapy, and some of the awards she's won in the past. Also, we might touch on what's coming soon. So we'll be right back. So yeah Quilting is Las Vegas' premier quilting and sewing supply retailer. Their goal is to provide the best supplies and customer service. Visit their store in person or shop online at SoyaQuilting.com. You can also find them on YouTube for tutorials, events, and flash sales to get a glimpse of who they are, what they do, and how much fun they have. For the Soyak yeah! Quilting family, it's a privilege to be in an industry filled with wonderful, caring people with a desire to make the world a little better every day. We'd like to welcome you to Rosie Girl Quilting. We are a family-owned online quilt shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our entire family is involved in some aspect of Rosie Girl Quilting, be it packing orders, creating quilt kits and sample quilts, wooden quilter tools or social media posts everyone has something fun to do we bring a wide variety of quilting fabrics with a focus on woven lines woven fabrics provide amazing texture softness and depth to the quilts you create check out our collections from companies such as diamond textiles peppered cotton and moda you won't be disappointed be sure to browse around the rest of the shop for art gallery fabrics Cotton and steel, tilde, and more. Visit us at rosygirlquilting.com. Use the discount code FIRE15. That's F I R E one five at checkout for 15% discount on your order. We look forward to seeing you. And we're back with Heidi Parks. Heidi, can you tell us about your studio space? Where do you create?
1: I make my quilts in a home studio, and I love having a home studio. It's something that I write about sometimes in my artist statements. The idea that there's a blurriness between my domestic life and my art life is very, very interesting to me. So I make art and I teach in my living room, which at this point is probably 85% studio, 15% living room.
0: (laughs) Okay. And I would love to talk about your focus on the hands with yoga, because this is really relevant to the quilter, right? So tell us what it means to be a yoga therapist.
1: So my first certification is in vinyasa flow yoga, which is the kind of yoga that probably comes to mind when most people think about yoga. We sit down at our mats, and then for an hour, we do a yoga practice. And then my second certification is yoga therapy. And that is more frequently done one-on-one and it's intimately linked with Ayurveda and this idea of exploring the elements of the world in connection to the body. But the micro macrocosm that is active in yoga therapy is around the elements of earth, water, fire, air, and ether which is also uh, translates to space, the space in between things, the space in between the atoms and in between the cells. And we also pay a lot of attention to the sun and the moon. So with those seven things in mind, someone can tell me about their life, about their emotions, about their body. And I can start to distill, okay, you've got a lot of heat. That might be an excess fire. And then how do we pacify that? How do we bring it back into balance? And it could be a yoga pose. It could be a hand gesture. It could be a different kind of asana. It could be a massage. It could be chanting with your voice. But that's the way that I would look at someone in a yoga therapy lens and then create healing for them. Yeah. And you
0: have you know, a hand yoga club with over 30 classes of hand yoga on YouTube. So tell us about that.
1: So in the hand yoga club, it's hopefully a way to remind folks to take care of their hands. And I think that there are a lot of five minute videos with the intention that maybe you could put a daily reminder on your calendar in your phone, and you could include the link. And so it would pop up every day at 3 p.m. And you'd say, oh yeah, I wanted to do five minutes of gentle movements. And so for maybe a month, you'd do the gentle movements video till you've memorized it, till it's part of your natural habit. And then maybe you'd choose a different five minute video on improving circulation. And you could watch that every day for a month. And then there's also a collection of videos that are either 20 minutes or 45 minutes that are much longer, more soothing, meditative, relaxing processes. And they might be focused on hands or shoulders. I even have some that I've done that are for the treadmill. So if you're trying to get your steps in and walking on a treadmill, Well, everyone on a treadmill ever wants to multitask. They're either watching TV or listening to a podcast or doing something else. And there's so much you could be doing with your hands while you're walking that uh, that kind of thing is exciting to me. So it's a way of empowering people to move their hands in ways that are generally healthy. And it's me pulling from my yoga background, as well as from my experience as a recipient of occupational therapy. And one of the most important things that I learned in occupational therapy is the phrase, motion is lotion. That if you're asking a lot of your hands When you're sewing, you're pinching and pulling and squeezing and tugging and gripping and holding things tight. The opposite of that is not doing nothing with your hands. Keeping your hands still is actually really exhausting for your hands as well. And the thing that they want is motion, gentle movement without tension, without anything else in the mix. And so my Favorite, favorite movement. If you were to do only one hand yoga move, it would be this gentle movement of opening your hands and closing your hands, but not the full spectrum of movement. So not closing into as tight of a fist as you can, not spreading as wide as you can, but no. moving across maybe the the middle 40% of that range of motion and f- Feeling that flow and that glide of your nerves and tendons in your hands, yeah. well, I definitely recommend, especially if your hands
0: are sore sometimes, go and check out all those videos on YouTube. and that's also where you'll find the twenty one episodes of the Soft Book that we talked about earlier with Luke and Zach. What's the name of that YouTube channel?
1: It is youtube.com slash Heidi Parks.
0: Okay, great. So people can go check that out. Now I want to talk a little bit about some of the awards. You're an award-winning quilt maker. So let's talk about that. Um, I want to start with Places Unfold. What did it win? And can you describe that quilt?
1: Yeah, that's the quilt that I was saying that I was making at the end of my career as an art teacher and that it was a lot of different blocks and hand embroidered and hand appliqued, but also using my machine. And that was the first time I submitted quilts to QuiltCon. I remember in 2015 seeing QuiltCon come across on Instagram and I thought, how do I not know about this thing? How can I be part of it? I researched everything. I submitted a lot of quilts and that quilt received first place for handwork. And it was just such a humbling, exciting moment to receive an award on a—I think it was the sixth quilt that I ever made. It was, you know, and and I had made so many other things up to that point. So it wasn't like I just dipped my toe into fiber art in general for the first time. But you know, I didn't know if if the Modern Quilt Guild would accept me or like my work because what I do is very much on the fringe of of that community. And there's a lot of machine things, and especially at that time, not as much handwork. And there's a lot of bold graphic design. And you know, I was doing these itty- bitty little embroideries. <laughs> and it was, thrilling to me to discover that that community was a community that I could be part of and engage in. And that was open and interested enough in in an expansive definition of what a modern quilt could be.
0: Yeah. And you had another quilt that won first place in handwork. Tell us about that one.
1: That quilt is called There's Something Between Us and I made it at the beginning of 2017 in response to a call for art for the Threads of Resistance exhibition. It was very similar to the Women's March in spirit, and a lot of the quilts that were submitted could have been posters or marched along in the Women's March. And while I went to the Women's March with my dad and my stepmom, and we loved it, I wanted to make a quilt that was a little bit more subtle. And every time I talked about ideas for that call for art with people like my friend Zach Foster and other friends, we were all struck by how deeply we loved people on the other side who had voted for Trump rather than yeah. um, for for Hillary, and that family divide was very interesting to me. And it was the part that hurt the most that uh, my mother didn't want to talk to me about the election at all whatsoever. She thought that was the safest way forward was let's, we disagree. So let's just not talk about it. And to me, after us having both been so excited about Obama together, when we both lived in Illinois, it just felt so unsettling to suddenly be excommunicated from being able to talk about politics with someone who I used to talk about politics. And, you know, my mom was always, uh, you know, said, as women, we have to vote. It's so important. And like, I believed her and bought, you know, bought into that 100%. And so this quilt is a great example of materiality. It started with a curtain from Ikea that my mom was with me when I bought All of these curtains when I moved out of her house when I was around 30 years old and into my own house. And it's from the moment in 2013 when I made my first quilt. And one of the bay windows that I had was short, so the the curtain needed to be hemmed and shortened. And my mom did that stitching for me by hand. And I thought, this. Curtain is an artifact of irrefutable proof of how much my mama loves me. And when I feel like hurt that she voted for this thing or that thing that, you know, aren't necessarily in my best interest um, that, you know, here's this other object that's saying my mother very much cares about my best interest. And how can this cognitive dissonance, how can these things that feel like they don't line up, how can, how can I maybe work through some of that with this quilt and we um, then the, then the quilt got into the exhibition Threads of Resistance, and then I had to tell my mom about the quilt, and <laughs> and then that was a real challenge. And we had a lot of emails that we sent back and forth about it, but it it again kind of cast that spell. It worked that magic that it got me and my mother talking to each other about political things, even though it was hard. And by the time in 2020 that I submitted that quilt to QuiltCon, and it received first place for handwork, I was able to call my mother excitedly and tell her that it had won first place. And that uh, was just truly remarkable and special for me and getting to stand a little bit away from that quilt like a fly on the wall and watch people interact with it was amazing it has a lot of text on it and some of it's easy to read and other parts yeah. of the text is very very challenging to read because it's white thread on a white quilt <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and it was the first time that I'd used a transparent scrim that transparency of the curtain was very interesting to me. And that barrier between what's public and what's private, what's my business and what's the business of my mother alone and, you know, not for me to dig into, uh, just felt like such an inherent and interesting part of it being a curtain. And getting to watch folks from both sides of the political aisle, um, you know, in a a quilt show in Texas, was amazing to see people cry when they saw that quilt, to see them take pictures of it and share it with family. And that quote was just recently in the solo show at the art museum in Wausau, Wisconsin, again, because of the materiality, because of that focus on repurposed materials. Yeah. And, you know, Wisconsin is a purple state and I feel the purpleness of this state all the time. And I think that of all the quilts that were in that show that people talked to me about, that quilt was by far the crowd favorite. Again, from both sides of the aisle, people feeling really touched and reminded that family relationships are being torn apart by the way that politics are in the country right now, mm-hmm. and that, that they're worth fighting for. Absolutely. And it tells such a story
0: of healing, right? Because you've worked through that with your mom and this is something that you stitched out in your mind and it helped you. That's so awesome. And I can see those people seeing it and why it resonated with them so much because reading, you know, my mother voted for such and such right on the quilt was Mm -hmm. like going to hit people in the face with, yeah, I have family members too, who we don't have the same political, you know, agreements, but we love each other and we're family. So I love Mm -hmm. that story. Okay. So I want to move into some of the things that are coming soon. What's
1: on your design wall right now? I am making two quilts right now. One has a pink background and it is a diary quilt about the present moment. Um, It's maybe also casting a bit of a spell. And if it is, it's a spell for me to have a tidier workspace and home <laughs> and living room. So I've been doing a lot of putting like with like and sewing little teeny tiny applique, all of the same type of fabric together, and and that verbing is going on. So in in my home lately, I've been finding all the straight pins and putting them all in one location instead of five locations and putting things together. But I'm also tracking the wider present moment with this quilt and it's the quilt that i'm making alongside my students in the the online diary quilting class and i began it in a 5-day diary quilting class that i was teaching at woodland ridge retreat in wisconsin the other quilt that is on the design wall is one that i began in france because i was traveling with my students for 11 days and that one is made with a whole cloth base of fabric that I dyed with onion skins because I was thinking about French onion soup. So <laughs> so that materiality of something very French to me is having a giant pile of onion skins because you had to chop a huge pile of onions to make that soup. And it's a fun quilt because it has a lot more figurative things in it than I normally do. I believe I was struck by how just amazing it is to see nude sculptures everywhere in France and and just all that figurative stuff. And I was struggling to sleep a little bit with my jet lag. And so I traced myself in some of the funny poses that I was in as I was attempting to fall asleep or uh, watching myself not sleep. And then the quilt is continuing to evolve now into me reminiscing about France And maybe it'll be even me anticipating traveling to Italy and be, you know, a a quilt that bridges both of those trips. We'll find out. But so far, it's my France travel quilt.
0: Yeah. And you touched on something earlier that's coming up for you. And that is your year-long class sort of slash mentorship. And so let's just dive into that a little bit more. If people are interested in working with you more closely and really, you know, advancing their own creative practice? How can they get involved in that?
1: So that class by now will be available in the shop page of my website. And I've got three different groups of 10 people. So you get to choose if you're gonna be the Sunday group or a different day of the week. And that class is going to meet in several different ways. We'll meet as a small group we will also meet in some pre recorded modules where I'm teaching and, and pre recording a lecture, and then students can watch it at any pace that feels good for them, um, any time that they can fit in their schedules. We will also have a meeting once a month where all 30 of us meet because there's like such a richness happening right now in my diary quilting class that has 60 students in it. And then the last time that students are going to meet each month is with other students one-on-one. And so we will begin meeting in January and students will have that first pre-recorded module to start watching in December. And that way, then when we meet, we'll have our small group and our large group, and they'll get their first assignment for a one-on-one pairing. So I'm just deeply excited about this series and curious to see where it leads us. Uh, Yeah. And so if
0: you're listening right now and you're thinking, wow, that seems like something that would suit me perfectly, get on the newsletter, follow along on Instagram, you know, get to those places where you can stay connected with Heidi. So you'll be the first to know. Yeah. So now it's time for the lightning round, Robin. It's a series of rapid fire questions and it's super fun. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What is your favorite tool or notion? My thimbles. Your thimbles, yes. okay. We already <laughs> talked about those. and i I actually kind of thought for a second you were going to say the same answer as Zach, which is probably your answer in retrospect, but he said oh, his hands,
1: <laughs> oh, well, but
0: that's kind of cheating. Is that really a tool? I it's-
1: think that's yeah, cheating. <laughs> I always have my hands, present <laughs> I know
0: okay. do you the ever things that protect my hands? <laughs> I know I know Do you ever have a sewing or quilting
1: escape? Hmm an escape. You know, the, the days where I say, I'm not going to be on the computer today. I'm going to wake up and sew all day and then go to sleep. Those are magical days. And, and, and I do get to make them sometimes here in my home studio.
0: Okay. That's great. Do you have any kind of personal reward system for getting
1: things done? that can be tricky. Sometimes I used to think if I get to the bottom of my email inbox, then I can. And, and using that kind of system to dole out quilting just I found wasn't feeling very healthy for anymore. So yeah. uh, I think I'm less on the reward system now and more just if life feels balanced, I right, do a little email, do a little quilting. And it's not healthy for me if I am. Um, on top of my email, but not sewing anything. Yeah, okay. So, what
0: is the skill in quilting that you've most recently learned?
1: So, I recently learned booty, oh, booty. <laughs> so, so booty, um without the midwestern accent and a little yeah. more tea in it. Booty is the art of working on trapunto and stuffing things using a big needle and sewing with a tiny thread and a tiny running stitch through two layers first and then this big needle to pull the yarn in and it was incredible to learn mm. this booty technique in France and I'm hoping to incorporate that technique in my France travel quilt so you'll be able to see more of it in the future. Okay have you had any weird funny or crazy quilting moments? I would say one of the funniest moments that reoccurs for me in the quilt world is when I tell the story of myself and mending, I realized that I was serious about mending. Um, When I went in to talk to my therapist and I said, I've been mending my underpants and they are disintegrating and I don't know what to do about it. I need to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to stop mending and just find new underpants that I can tolerate wearing. And um, and so this led to my therapist suggesting that I read a book called The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. And she has has the idea in her book that, Some people have very sensitive nervous systems and they can hear things more than other people or they can feel things more than other people or see things more. And it's potentially advantageous and exciting and a superpower, but it's also a source of incredible stress and overwhelm and causes a lot of problems in our lives. And so for me, learning that, Other people aren't just overcoming the problems that I think I am encountering. They don't have problems like that. Their underwear doesn't feel as troublesome as my underwear feels for me. And, And reading that book when I was teaching high school art just opened my mind to this incredible new way of thinking about my body and what was good for me and what wasn't good for me. And so while I was very good at teaching high school art, teaching high school art wasn't very good for me. It created too much sensory overwhelm. And so mending my underwear led to reading a book that led to me changing my career and becoming a quilter. And I think that's a funny origin story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So has there been a mentor who has really influenced you along
1: your journey? I would say I've had several very important mentors, but the one that comes to mind first is someone that I know through the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Kate Schuda is in the CAPEX program, which is the career services program. She works with current students and also works with alumni. And when I decided that I wanted to change my career, I realized CAPEX is the program I need to connect to. Because when I applied to art school, we were using slides and we didn't even all own our own computers and artists didn't have websites back then. Yeah. So- I went to the Art Institute, and the first person that I met in that program was Kate Schuda. She's the director of the program, and at first, every other Saturday, she was teaching a class on a different aspect of being a working artist. The very first class was on how to have a social media presence, and I had 250 followers on Instagram at the time who were all my Facebook friends. <laughs> and, and and she got me to think about social media in a different way and as a tool that could be very helpful and as a place where I could feel good about sharing what I was doing and I could feel generous about sharing what I was doing online. And then after that, she kept having us in for classes on an elevator pitch and how to interview and how to have a website and how to write an artist statement and uh, how to photograph my art. And that was incredible. And she is a person who I, as an alumni, can still go online in the portal for for alumni, and I can make a half hour appointment with her on Zoom or in person any time that I want to get advice. And that has been absolutely invaluable to me she has inspired me to stretch and grow and take risks and be brave over and over again
0: yeah what a great feature of an educational program that after support so valuable yeah, okay they
1: do you want us to be successful it's yeah that's so great
0: that's wonderful <laughs> do you have any weird strange unusual collections of things
1: mm, I think I have a collection of something that is very normal, my fabric collection, but I organize it in a very strange way. Mm -hmm. I don't organize my fabric by rainbow order, which I think is the most popular way of organizing fabric. I organize it by origin story and materiality. So I have a section of fabrics that are like family nostalgia from my mom and my grandma. I have a section of fabric from the rummage at the quilt museum. I have a section of fabric from my travels in India and also Japan and also Korea or not Japan. Well, my friend Takako went to Japan and she bought fabric for me. So I haven't been yet, but I do have yeah. a Japanese fabric section and my Korean fabrics. I have uh, just like, uh, things things that i bought at Joanne fabrics from more traditional resources that's an area and i have some a sec, the one section that is perhaps more traditionally organized is my linen and heavier weight textured fabric that is all together by fabric weight but um yeah i think it's a little unusual but it helps me remember what to me is one of the most important things about the fabric which is the materiality and the storytelling yeah Okay, and do you have any furry friends in your studio? I am an aunt to a black pug named Penelope, oh. and I'll be visit. I'll be I'll be babysitting her next week, and so then I'll make sure that I'm quilting on my couch so she can be next to me instead of on my chair, where I can't have a furry friend next to me. And um, oh, I love that pug with my whole heart, even though I do not have any pets of my own maybe maybe I love her more because she's my niece <laughs> yeah yeah
0: sometimes when you have other people's little pets or children you get to let them go home right
1: <laughs> Before yes, they miss exactly me. <laughs> exactly I never have to coordinate a babysitter for her or pay for her to go to the veterinarian yeah I get to just love her and snuggle her and then send her back to her family
0: yeah. Well, that was fun. Thank you for braving the lightning round robin. So, I've mentioned your website. Let me just mention it again. It's HeidiParks.com and Parks is P A R K E S. So, where do you think that it would be best for quilters to connect with you on social media?
1: That would be my Instagram account. It is at Heidi.Parks. I'm also on threads with the same name, Heidi.Parks and I'm on YouTube as just Heidi Parks, and I'm on Pinterest as Heidi Parks Art. Okay, great.
0: Now, as you wrap up, what do you want quilters to take away most from our conversation today?
1: I would love for people to take away that quilting can be a place for storytelling and for healing, and that by thinking about the way you tell a story Changing the way that that story is phrased, reframing it, can lead to healing and can lead to a gentler way of remembering things and can create some really exciting, powerful, different, fresh, new neural pathways for you as a way forward.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And what a great way to end the podcast on such a fine note. Heidi, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me.
1: Thank you. This was so fun. We got to really dig in. It was nice to get to spend so much time together.
0: Yeah, we did. Okay, so that was my show with Heidi Parks. The thing that delights me most about Heidi is her focus on the domestic history of her own life in her practice and the appreciation for the cloth, its past use, and the stitch. She has created a contemporary practice of methodical handwork that also includes a strong element of self care with the yoga practice. This was such a fun world to dive into, and I'd love to know know if it has inspired you to slow down a little bit try out some hand care some hand stitching and whether you might change anything in the way you quilt as a result of this great conversation send me or Heidi a note on the socials to let us know I'm really looking forward to watching Heidi Parks on Instagram to see what she's up to next as she continues to grow and I loved sharing her story with you today. Join me for a quilter's dream trip to Japan in May 2024. Delight in the breathtaking beauty of traditional Japanese towns, shop for stunning fabrics, and learn traditional Japanese techniques like sashiko. Be part of our textile tour to Japan and experience a world of art, craft, and culture with new quilting friends. Book your spot today by calling Judy at Opulent Quilt Journeys, one 235 3767 or go to opulentquiltjourneys.com. Again, don't forget to check out So yeah Quilting and Rosie Girl Quilting. When you shop with our advertisers, you are supporting the Quilter on Fire podcast. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.